International Teacher Magazine presents Talking About the ITM Podcast with your host, Andy Hamden. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this ITM podcast. It's my great pleasure to uh, welcome Stephen Priest, who is the principal at the British International School, uh, Tbilisi in Georgia, uh, and Katie Tomlinson, who's head of primary at Sri KDU in uh, in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And I'd just like to ask uh, both of them to tell them uh, to tell us a little bit about themselves. And Katie, I think you're uh, going to a new job this year, aren't you? Yes, so I've been in Malaysia now for five years. It's my first international posting, so it was so exciting when I came here. But yeah, time has moved on. I'm going to a new adventure. I'm going to be going to the British School Manila uh, in August. So yes, and I've been a head teacher for oof, 15 years, a long time. Yes, 15 years, and I'm still really nervous about it. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing the job. The first day assembly, I'm still going to be quivering before before I start. So yeah, and um, that's going to be really really exciting for me come August time. It doesn't change, does it? I mean, I had that Monday morning feeling as I was coming in, and you know, it, it felt like at the beginning of a new week, all the schools are back here in Ireland, and first day of school, and you do get that feeling, Stephen. Uh, uh, back in Tbilisi at the moment. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you've come to be where you are. Uh, yes, I, uh, I I will tell anybody that I've got the best job in the world. Uh, we're, we're very much a school on a on a journey. And uh, I, I've never wanted to be one of those school leaders who's polishing the ornaments at the end of a journey. Uh, I want to be where the challenge is. And uh, it's certainly a challenge to... Uh, develop our school and move us forward. So uh, I've really been enjoying that over the last five years, and uh, I'm not going anywhere this summer, apart from a holiday. But, uh, and before I became principal here, I was in Kathmandu, and I was uh, vice principal there for 13 years. Uh, so uh, I uh, probably needed the change after 13 years. <laughs> 13 years, that's a long time in one place, but what a place to be in Kathmandu in the British school there. Amazing place. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a fantastic experience, and it was very good uh, just this recent holiday to go back there and meet some of our old friends yeah. who uh, still yeah. work at the school. So you mentioned challenge there, and I think probably I can't think of a more challenging job than to be a head of a school. I mean, it is all the time. It's full on. Uh, you're the demands on your time through the day. As you were preparing for this job, Katie, and as you were preparing to become a school leader, and as you have been a school leader, what have been the ideas and the influences, the, the what, what people have written about leadership that might have influenced you to prepare you for the job? It's interesting, really, because I never had any aspiration to become a school leader. And I think um, meeting quite early on in my career a really fabulous head teacher who saw in me something I hadn't really recognized in myself uh-huh. was perhaps the thing that pushed me through to, to school leadership. Um, and I think in my first headship where 
I mean, you just don't know whether you're coming or going and it doesn't matter what qualifications you've taken. You know, if you've done your MPQH and you think you're really well prepared, there'll always be something because it's the job that just keeps on giving, isn't it really? Every day is different. And, you know, after 20, 70 years as a teacher, I'm still encountering new things. But at very early in my headship, when I was doubting myself quite a lot, I was working in schools of high deprivation in the UK. Yeah. And um, somebody gifted me, it was my mentor at the time, um, The Magic Weaving Business by John Jones, a book. And it's such a, a great book because it's so easy to read, pick up, put down. And really the basis of the book is all about for teachers being the magic weavers and, you know, the keeper of dreams. But actually I read it with a different eye because I was stepping into headship. Um, I read it that I had to be that magic weaver for my teachers and Jen, and I, I had to learn to love my staff. Um, I had to learn to have that unconditional love for them, that relationship with them, to see the good in them. And the more I reflect on my leadership now, I know that that journey of somebody spotting something in me I didn't see myself, my feelings of failure going into my first headship, and then having this book that was really meant for teachers made me feel so empowered that if I built these relationships and, you know, if anybody talks to me about leadership and says, what, what, what's the key to it? I always say relationships, 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 because anything else that you try to do, if you've not got the relationships to underpin it, it's just going to fail at some point along. So I think for me, those early encounters in my leadership and reframing things was really important for me. That's really interesting. I'm going to come back to several of those points. Um, picking up John Jones, who I love, I think he's fantastic, that magic weaving book. And and when you are in a dark spot, sometimes you need something like that to lift you. Stephen, do you relate to that? What, what have been the influences on your early part of your career as you've evolved into a leader? Yeah, I, I actually agree with uh, John Jones. I was very lucky enough to see him at a Bob Sear conference in uh, Penang. And he he had people rolling in the aisles. He is uh, genuinely one of the most funny people you can ever meet. Uh, and he is an inspiration as well for the work that he's done. Uh, but uh, yes, I, I do have influences. Uh, and, and this question, I think it's very interesting, isn't it? Because as a school leader, uh, you come back from uh, conferences or you come back from reading articles or books and uh, and, and the, the middle leaders or the other senior leaders at your school are, are suddenly, oh, no, he's got some other crazy idea. We've got to implement it. And I've been that person who's had to implement it. And then, then they go to another conference and they, they've got another crazy idea. Uh, but, uh, w- one of my influences that, that I've had since, since I worked in Doncaster in the 90s, actually, would be uh, Sir Alex Clegg, uh, which mm-hmm. many people won't, won't necessarily know much about Alex Clegg, but he he ran uh, the West Riding of Yorkshire's education from 1945 until 1974, and, and it's about creativity. And you know, most of what he was trying to do was about creativity within teaching, within pedagogy, within curriculum, etc. But I think you can extend that into leadership and it's about getting your team to be creative and getting them to think of new ideas, new initiatives, new ways of solving problems and allowing them that freedom to do so. So yeah. that, that I think, would be yeah. one of my influences in terms of the theory. If there was one book that I'd be allowed to mention, uh, I think it would have to be Henry Marshall's Do No Harm uh, because there, there is a desire for some people to seek perfection all the time and they don't really 
they don't really see the impact of, of uh, seeking perfection. And I think what Henry Marsh has, has brought to education from neurosurgery is, is a powerful message. That's really interesting. I, I haven't come across Marsh, I have to say. Clegg, yes, um, one of the great uh, ahead of his time in so many ways and yeah, yeah. deserves to be read more and more nowadays because people are talking about the sort of things that Clegg raised and brought forward in those days, just allowing people to do things. Um, Katie, coming back to you, you said that someone saw something in you that you hadn't realized you was in yourself. What sort of conversation did that lead to, and, and how did you reflect and think about it uh, as you followed up? Um, at the time, they were, I found them difficult conversations right. on the receiving end because I felt they were maybe pushy conversations. So the head teacher would say, we need an assessment lead. I think you'd be really good for it. But I, I didn't believe I would be really good for it. So when I was like, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know if this is right for me. And he was like, no, you will be really good at it. Have a go. Then when let, let's look at things next term. And I think, you know, what, what you were saying there about um, letting people have a go and being willing to like pick up the pieces if they weren't quite doing it or being willing to accept that they were doing it in their own way was okay. And he let me do that. And I felt quite empowered, actually, by going into that assessment leader's role, relatively newly qualified um, and being able to make it my own um, without the fear of retribution if I got it wrong. Because I did, I got I got a lot of stuff wrong, and and, that, and there was frustration around that. So I do something. I was generating an assessment policy and and looking at how we were going to do more assessment for learning within it. And when I went to him and had like you know a couple, a meet, we had a meeting every couple of weeks. He would say, "No, what about this, Katie? As well, have you thought about that?" And he would just prompt me with questions. But I would I would get quite frustrated at the time. But by the time we'd worked through it all, I was proud because it was my work. Whereas if he had said, I, I remember going home and saying to my husband, I don't know why he just doesn't do it himself because I'm not doing, I must not be. But really, he was challenging me to make it better. And at the end, I felt really proud of the work that I'd done around assessment. And I felt um, that I'd been given the respect to do it myself. And, and I believed in me as a leader then because he'd believed in me. And you've both used two similar words that I'd like to uh, explore a little bit further. Stephen, you said unconditional, and you've got to have a sort of unconditional uh, belief in what uh, people are doing. And, and Katie, you said no retribution. So I, I doubt very much uh, it, that you didn't have a conversation, that you, you, you must have had a conversation, but it's the sort of conversation that you must have had when things went wrong. Stephen, follow up a little bit about that idea about unconditionality, uh, about that kind of acceptance uh, that you need to to generate. Yeah, I, I, I think it starts with me doing it myself. Uh, yes. It, it, Katie said that she was uh, very nervous about taking on roles, and uh, I think probably I was a bit the opposite. I mean, you know, this pushy northern upstart. And uh, I, and it, and it reflects in in actually Katie's writing for the magazine, doesn't it, about uh, uh, gender and, and and leadership. Uh, but all conditionality is is that we have to embrace uh, that risk. 
and we have to allow people to fail or we have to allow people to succeed massively because if we don't if we don't give them that that kind of uh, unconditional control over what they want to do uh, they're not they're going to do it in a mirror image of how they think we want it to be done and then mm-hmm. we're going to miss out on that creativity mm. yes well, one of my favorite sayings is learning is a messy business it is a messy business. There is no straight. Uh, this was one of uh, the the people that I, I I was sort of using very early in my career. A guy called John Fines, who wrote about the theory of history teaching, and, and it was interesting because I thought, well, you just got to improve. You just got to be good. You just got to get better. And as you said earlier on, the the perfect can be the enemy of the good, and you just don't get anything done. Absolutely. And and Tom Sherrington always talks about. Yeah seeing learning and he says you know anybody who goes in a classroom and thinks they can see learning in that moment they're just not thinking straight because learning takes time it's messy it goes backwards and forwards and up and down and round about so don't go and do a a full lesson observation and think you saw learning because learning is something that happens over time and it's very reflective and I think that leadership is like that also I, I cringe sometimes when I think about my very early leadership, you know, 15 years ago, the things that I perhaps thought were important or spent time on, um, you know, maybe those messy conversations, but actually perhaps that's just evolving leadership and what actually needs to happen for you to get Uh better at what you do. You need to be able to make mistakes admit them, learn from them, move on from them within that whole journey. It's that imperfect leadership that Steve Mumbis wrote about in his most recent book. You know, it's progress, not perfect. Perfectionism is just absolutely the destroyer of progress. I'm picking up two things from both of you here, that you value going back and reading about leadership and reading about learning. But without actually going into the classroom and seeing it and experiencing it in all its messiness, that theory doesn't really go very far. Steve, would you would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah, I, I think you have to be there uh, to see it because you've got to you've got to feel it. You can't read about it from statistics. You've got to feel it. So uh, my daily uh, lunch date with Foundation Two is uh, is for me about learning what is happening in early years. And then I still want to teach as well. And I still still do, still a geography teacher, uh, uh, possibly as a leader, one of the more unreliable teachers in the team. But uh, <laughs> I, I still do want to teach. Uh, and, and those learning walks, I, I get so frustrated by having you know all those boring things that we have to do in my office. But uh, it, it's such a joy to be able to get out and see uh, see that messy process. Turbulent, I think, is a good word. From, from a geography teacher's perspective, when you think of uh, rivers, uh, with the white water rivers and how turbulent they are. And pushing off those rocks and making sure that you can get everything going in the right direction. Yeah, interesting. So the learning walks uh, that you got, what do you want to see when you set out on a learning walk? What do you plan or do you just let it happen? Yeah, every day I just let yep. it happen. There yep. are, uh, yes, obviously there are functional learning walks that we have, but uh, my personal learning walks are just letting it happen. And what I yep. really want to see is engagement. Yeah. So you would go off and 
do your staff, both of you, expect you to come into your classroom and, and don't mind you coming to the classroom, even if you haven't given them notice? What happens, Katie? Yeah, I mean, my staff are um, just used to seeing me. I think one of the things um, that I've been I was given good advice, really, uh, as a head teacher, always along the way, was, was be very visible. I think that pays dividends, really, if you do it from the very beginning of your headships. Um, because if you start it later, it's seen as something that you've just introduced. But from the very beginning of my headships, I've always been very, very active in my role. So always been visible with parents, but always going into classrooms. And then when I'm new in a role, because um, going to Manila will be my fifth headship in the last 50. So I I think that establishing yourself first to be a very positive person about when you're being there. So there's no psychological threat from you walking in. There's not, you're not saying things negatively. You're not, you're just having casual conversations that are beginning that trust relationship. You're picking up what you really like about what you're seeing. And it's all positivity to build those relationships to begin with. My staff don't mind, but we've made it so that, or I've made it, but I just, we're just there all the time. And we'd like being yeah. in each other's rooms as well. So my staff like to watch each other with no um, expectation that they're going to do a written feedback about it. Cause this written feedback that we do, Sometimes, you know, like if you go back um, years ago in our headships, like, you know, written feedback for staff, grading their lessons. I mean, full lesson observations with with full on written feedback with given gradings, they should be banned from the world of teaching. They're just really <laughs> derogatory to how teachers will begin to feel and see their teaching. And that's just my philosophy about that, that just being there, there's no more joy that you can get from just seeing the kids and the teachers doing the business of teaching in their rooms. How did you find the change, Kate? I'm going to ask Katie first and then going to ask Stephen for your uh, uh, perspective on this because you've been overseas for, for, for quite a lot longer. Katie, how did you find the change from going from uh, the UK state system to uh, uh, British international schools? Um. Empowering in many ways, because um, I don't think in UK schools there is any getting away from the pressure of Ofsted. You know, and I was, um, I knew what I believed was right as a head teacher, but even I held a fear. I, I banned myself mm. from saying the word Ofsted um, until I said they were coming tomorrow, you know, that kind of approach. But the fear lived with me about what they were doing. And I think because I worked in schools where there were high levels of deprivation and I knew what my children needed was support with behavior and welfare and well-being before they could do English, math, science and all the rest of the curriculum. And I didn't feel that the UK system gave me the freedom to do that. Now, there's many educators that will say it does. But the fear of exam results and the fear, that fear lives. I was a year six teacher before I was ahead for 11 years. Yeah. And I don't know whether that's got something to do with it. I lived in that with a bit of fear around all of that. And yet all my schools performed very, very well. So it was an irrational fear. Moving internationally and being able to say that actually, and being, you know, the, the, the pressure to get standards in a way is more because I've got fee-paying parents. I work in an, an Asian community who have very high expectations. They want their children to do exceptionally well, as do we. The pressure in some ways is more, but I don't feel it the same. 
Because that's interesting. You know, yeah. Ofsted in the UK can make or break careers. It, it, they're career defining moments. These head teachers that will get an outstanding Ofsted judgment, judgment will live on that. And I've seen schools decline after getting those judgments because it's, and that's what the same reason we don't, you know, award classroom observations gradings. Um, yep. It just, they're the terror I, and I and I still believe that it's the one thing that if I went back to UK education would frighten me interesting Stephen do you ever see yourself going back to the UK having been uh, an international teacher and leader for, for some time uh, uh, no I don't no uh, I think you know I, I am starting to look towards the end of my career actually and, and uh, it, won't, it won't be that many years before I'm thinking about retirement so uh, I I won't be looking to go back to the UK as a teacher. And is that because of the kind of things that Katie has said about Ofsted and uh, those inspections and so on? Yes, I think I think, uh, and it's it's become a jargon-filled world that I don't necessarily understand anymore in the UK because I left in '99, mm. and uh, and there's a whole language out there. When I I speak to my cousin and her husband who are teachers in Sheffield and, and they use uh, words and phrases and acronyms that uh, I can only guess at now. It's interesting that uh, those uh, that language does does change so quickly, so very quickly. And you feel you feel like a stranger in your own country when you when, when you start talking to people uh, about yeah. that kind of things. But um, yeah, I went through the uh, the DSIB, the uh, Dubai Schools Inspection Bureau, where we had an Ofsted-style inspection every year. I was there for seven, eight years, and I think I went through eight, eight inspections. And yet, there was no pleasure. And yet, you feel the accountability, don't you, in, in, in overseas situations, in international situations, in, in, in the, the kind of way that Katie was just been talking about, about the parents' expectations and, and just the desire to do well. I think that's true, and I think that we need to have that accountability to make sure that we are continuing to be the best that we can possibly be. And uh, using things like uh, COVID gradients, accreditation, or BSO systems, uh, we do need to have that kite mark, uh, or because there are you know, thousands of other international schools out there, but uh, if we're going to keep our brand as being a high-quality, innovative uh, group of schools around the world, we do yeah. need to have a certain amount of accountability, yes. But it's Absolutely. having that accountability that looks at the right things. So what are the right things to look at, Katie? Uh, when, when, when you're looking at accountability, how do you want to... Uh, to examine your own school and say, look, we've got to think about this and do something about that. How do you go about it? I think, um, you know, data obviously plays one part of it, but I would always look at progress data rather than attainment data at the end of a key stage. You know, look how, you, how well your children are doing from year to year and progressing at their own pace. Um, but I also think, you know, stakeholder view, look, what do your kids think about the school? Uh, you know, if, if my kids are happy, kids are very astute from a very young age. They know whether they're learning or not, whether they feel like they are making progress in their learning and where their learning needs to go. 
and parents also. And I think, you know, now we're in this coming into this post-COVID era, parents mm. never more have had a view into our classrooms and understand. I think there's a different respect there now because of that. But they also understand maybe progress and their children's attainment a little bit better maybe than they did before. Um, but what the parents think, you know, it, when we're in uh, many, many international schools are, are for profit, and really, who are the best advertisers and marketeers for your school than your current parents and what they're telling their friends, uh, people who ask them about the school? You know, to me, those two key stakeholders of students and parents are a very big measure. It's no use getting great academic results if actually parents are not that happy or the kids don't really think they're doing as well as they could do. And is what parents are looking for, Stephen, do you think um, changing over the course of the last two or three years? Are they looking for different things than, than they were, say, five or six years ago? Yes, probably. They're, it all depends on the different marketplaces around the world because it, uh, our international schools are all in diverse places. And, and even within that, you've got parents who are coming with very different expectations. So uh, here in Tbilisi, we have parents who, you know, almost would like us to be like Hogwarts or something and uh, uh, and, and have a very traditional uh, system, whereas we have others who want to see modern education, contemporary education, uh, which isn't just measured in numbers. So, but I do feel that parents, through our attempts to make them more aware about what is really important in education, are starting to change what they want. So, when we talk about the value of uh, here at, in Tbilisi, every child has a singing lesson once a week. When we tell them about the value of singing as a group, as a choir, uh, then they do see the benefits of that uh, when they're made aware of, of how it makes children feel to be able to work as a group. Yeah? Uh, introduction of things like forest schools and outdoor learning, these are things that uh, parents wouldn't really have understood any of the benefits of in the past. Uh, and uh, as you as you bring those initiatives into a school and the parents uh, hear about what children are saying about it and what they've learned that day and how it's made them feel and uh, how they've made a shelter or they've found a spider or, or, or whatever, uh, then the parents are starting to say, actually, this is learning. This is learning. And it's, more, it's a movement away from them being good at algebra. Yeah. Does that strike a chord with you, Katie? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, my parent body more and more are understanding what I think used to be called, but I think we need to be, find a different name for it, what used to be called soft skills in being resourceful or being creative or being independent, those soft skills, you know, that actually they're the things that support you in your life and make you a better person, a more self-motivated person, someone who can achieve more. Um, a lot of our children have aspirations to own their own business and be entrepreneurial. Without those those soft skills, which are not soft at all, they're just less quantifiable, um, then they're going to struggle to do some of those things. So, yeah, I think our parents, particularly um, in, in our context, are beginning to see that that value. 
do you think they're beginning to value the education of the whole child, in other words, rather than just an academic person, an academic being? You're both nodding, Stephen, first. Let's, let's, let's explore that a little bit. Yeah, so I, I definitely think that, that is true now. Uh, what Katie said there about the, the so-called soft skills uh, and, and people talk about 21st century skills, etc. Uh, these are about holistic learning and uh, parents haven't seen that in the past and now they realise that if, if they want their children to be uh, successful or perceived as successful uh, in the 21st century, that it is more about that holistic person and that whole portfolio of, of skills and ideas that uh, a child can leave school with. So how much, Katie, is that to do with the relationships that you were talking about right at the very beginning of, uh, of this podcast? Yeah, I guess it relates directly back, doesn't it? You know, in, in terms of um, the children that I first started working with and worked with for 22 years of, of my career, um, coming from areas where they lived on the poverty line, really, you know, getting the right qualifications was only part of what they needed to do to pull out of their poverty cycles. What they also needed to do was be able to self-motivate and be independent. And, you know, I think one of the hard things that I found initially with some of these soft skills and teaching them was how we help teachers to understand what to recognize and um, to be more explicit. So, you know, what does being resourceful look like in a classroom when you're six? Um, you know, it's being able to get and how your teachers organize your classroom so that you can go and get a glue stick if you need it, that it won't be in a pot on your desk, that you could go and get a dictionary rather or ask a friend. Um, you know, it's three before me strategies and all of this kind of thing. So I think to me, a lot of what I introduced in my headships was around the soft skills, but around the fact that I I wanted my staff to know how to explicitly teach it. You know, what does this look like in our classrooms? Because at a primary level, when you're only five or six, that's really difficult. Katie was talking about having the confidence to, to have a go and to do things and be organized and, and to, to take the initiative uh, uh, as a result of uh, the development of soft skills in a primary school. And I was wondering, uh, from your perspective, what it looks like uh, in a secondary school or in the secondary element of your school? Yes, uh, it's about providing opportunities uh, that the students and the teachers are going to buy into. Uh, there's teachers are uh, uh, sort of subject nationalists sitting on their own little island somewhere, aren't they? And it's like, you know, I teach geography and it's my job to do this and I'm not going to do that. Uh, but uh, providing activities that they can that they can all buy into, whether that be a teacher or a student, is is the way forward. Uh, recently, here at BIST, we we did an entrepreneurship day where Key Stage Three students were, were had a, a competition. Uh, they were set into different groups, and they had to compete against each other to entertain, if you like, and uh, uh, the uh, upper Key Stage Two students. So there were games, there was food stalls, there was all sorts of activities, and they had to plan these over a week and then do it on a Friday afternoon. And it brings out that uh, it brings out all those different skills. Uh, I think what we've also done is try to reframe rewards and uh, awards and rewards. And in, in, in instead of you know it just being oh here's a merit point for a good piece of work, uh, it's about 
each month using one of our learning goals, which is things like resilience or thoughtfulness, etc., uh, and using those as the award focus. So, mm-hmm. you know, this month's uh, resilience award winners are, uh, rather than, you know, just tallying up points for doing good work. So that they actually learn to recognize it, that you're affirming what's going on and, and recognizing and showing that you recognize it. Uh, and this is what it looks like to me. What does it look like to you? Katie, you were you were sort of seeming to agree with what Steve was saying there about affirmation uh, of, you know, the learning goals. Is, yeah. is that something that, that you like to do? We we move, we still have house points, but the house points are awarded according to, we call them learning powers, but I guess it's the, it's a similar thing, but they're awarded for the learning powers. So um, you will have a house point um, for persevering because I know you found that really, really tricky, but you didn't give up because it's irrelevant whether they didn't finish the task because the joy is in the process and awarding um or recognizing the achievement within the process and not the end outcome, I think is really important when you're developing character. And that's because that's what character is really, isn't it? The ability to stick with things, the ability to troubleshoot, the, you know, all of those things that we look for when we as school leaders em- employ our staff. You know, when you go to an interview and you, you've got a, a candidate sat in front of you, you know, they're worthy in terms of their outcomes of their. Um, qualifications. What I'm looking for in interviews is, and can is is this person a flexible thinker? What have they done in their life that shows me that they're resilient? Whether it be in the personal life, the professional life, um, what are they? How are they going to show me that they've acted with their own initiative and they've been resourceful? I want to know all of that. I'm checking their learning powers out in an interview. <laughs> so it's character as well as competence that you're trying Absolutely. to. Absolutely, especially when you've got um, an international environment, because this yeah. isn't just um, you know a, a job in the UK when they might be living with their family or living in their home unit. Everything about their life is going to change if they come and work um, in a different country. And I have to be confident that this person has enough self-management to be able to settle in a country to be able to do their job effectively. Um, so you're, look, you're looking for all of those side things, really. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that they're kind of they've got the qualifications and they've got the competency they got that far to get interviewed by me so i'm assessing their person skills really and you'd hope to you'd had the reference as well that you could look at the cvs well set out yeah they've got to come across as a person haven't they yeah absolutely you want to know whether they're fitting with your team and whether they're going to adapt to the, to the school in the right way and a lot of my staff I don't know if this is the same with your staff Steve, but I get a lot of um, young staff coming who've perhaps come internationally leaving their parents home leaving their bedroom at home in their parents house for the very first time living on their own in their early 20s I joke a lot of the time I, I say sometimes it's like rubbing running club 1830 well so they don't know what I'm talking about because they're too young to know about Club 1830. <laughs> Does that strike a chord, Stephen? Uh, yes, it is. We, we are fortunate enough to have quite a mixture of staff, but yes, we do get yeah, There is a, a, a fair proportion of them that are still in their 20s. And uh, actually, yeah, they let me know it when I say something like Club 1830 or, or some reference <laughs> that is a little bit out of date. They do let me know that I am in my 50s. Who is Alex Clegg? Yes. 
yeah. One question that I'd like to explore with both of you that um, um, we haven't talked about is the balance between international teachers on your staff and, and local teachers on your staff. Uh, is that changing? And, and what sort of issues does this bring forward uh, as this does change? Stephen first. Yes, we have gone through uh, a, a two two processes really. We, when I first came to the school, we had a lot of uh, local uh, teachers who we shared with another school because there weren't enough uh, hours for full time positions. So we we were sharing PE, language teachers, etc. As the school grew, we increased the number of. Uh, international teachers that we did have, but we've also at the same time been trying to uh, develop local teachers through as well. So uh, in early years, we've got two two local teachers. Uh, one of them is really pushing herself forwards now, uh, becoming a leader within within that team. Uh, our Senko is is a, a local teacher. And she's leading leading a, a small team to support children uh, with with special educational needs. So it's now something that we are consciously trying to grow and to develop. And it is a necessity, I think, in the modern world because uh, attracting teachers is becoming more and more difficult. So if you have somebody in house, you have somebody local who you can then develop. Uh, and, and, and through you know things like I uh, PGCI uh, and another training that is out there, I think it is most definitely worth trying to de- develop that person. And what about the the balance between international and local at three uh, KD UKT? What's happening there? So overall, across the whole school, we have about fifty fifty balance, but mm-hmm. um, all of the classroom teachers in our international primary are. Um, expatriates, UK trained. Um, they're not all British, but they are trained within UK schools. Um, but that's changing. Things are moving forward a little bit. I have amazing classroom assistants who are all local staff and they are absolutely fabulous at their job. And well, the joy of having local staff, I guess, is the fact that Whilst international teachers, by the nature of the role and the nature of the people that do the roles, they will come, come for two years, come for four years, and then they will move on because they're adventurous people. And the local staff will stay much longer and will establish, you know, some of the base that, that keeps that backbone of the school and the core values and that in, that in, uh, organizational intelligence remaining within the organization. I have some teaching assistants who are trained to be teachers within the national system. I have a lovely teaching assistant who is very, very capable and is doing a PGCI and will hopefully remain in the school after she's completed that. But I think, you know, now we're in this post-COVID environment as well, we're going to get to the point that um, getting visas for teachers is even more important, harder than it used to be. And only those with highly specialised skills and experience are going to be the ones that we can get the visas for. Um, and, and that's great. You know, if we can get local teachers who are going to do the job really well, that, that's what we want for the country. So it seems to me, that's interesting. It's good for the country. Um, 
Yes, it would be great for Malaysia, great for Georgia, if you get more and more competent teachers. So what sort of role, Stephen, do international schools have? What sort of responsibility do they have to develop local teachers uh, within the the schools that uh, we're working in? I think they have a massive responsibility to do this, yes. uh, We're guests in these countries, uh, and if we don't give back to the, the, you know, the long-term educational development. Uh, I think it, that has to be part of our mission. If we don't do that, then we're negligent. And if we can take a teacher into our school and they do you know, X number of years for us, but then move on to one of the local schools or into the state sector, then we're, we're doing something to support our host country. Uh, we take university interns in PE from the sports university here and yeah, uh, two of them we've given a job to, uh, but obviously we can't. We can't. We can only give so many jobs away. Uh, but th- these are these are ways that we can actually make sure that we are supporting that local community. Because if all the schools get better, uh, well, there's more opportunities for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Just moving towards wrapping up this uh, this really interesting conversation. And thank you so much for everything you're contributing to it. I'd like to ask a couple of questions. Katie, obvious question for you, really. What are you looking forward to next year? Being challenged. Um, I I thrive off being pushed forward. And I think next year, any anybody going into a new role, no matter how long you've been doing the job for, it's a challenge. So I'm looking forward to a new period of growth for myself, really. And... Um, you know, for the adventures that, that that will bring also. And what sort of impact are you looking to make at any new school that you go to? What would you, this is Katie Tomlinson, this is me, I will make this kind of difference. Look, I don't, I don't think that it's useful to set outside, out your store for I'm going to do this one thing. What I okay. would know is that I... By the time I leave, and I haven't school hopped a lot, but by the time I leave, I want to leave a legacy, something that will survive beyond my leadership, Um, an element of school growth, a project, an initiative, something that remains. Because I think, to me, the strength of your leadership is in what you leave behind. So what I would like say, you know, five or eight years time when I'm talking about leaving Manila and moving on to another position, perhaps, I would like to be able to say, this. Is, I'm proud of what I've left behind. I'm proud of the work that I've done and the legacy I will leave. Thank you. Stephen, what are you looking forward to next year and beyond? Uh, yes, I, it, it's that ability now for us to get back to uh, planning for life without COVID, isn't it? So, uh, well, that's already started in that uh, we, we seem to be edging towards the post-COVID world and we can start really making those uh, plans that were often put on the back burner of things that we wanted to do, things we wanted to achieve, can now come off the back burner and come back to the forefront. So uh, we were really starting to make international engagements uh, through the Black Sea Schools uh, group and our community of schools in, the, in this part of the world. Uh, where the students were, were traveling, uh, you know, to, to visit each other's schools as well as working online, that, that can restart again. Uh, we can really get out, you know, get our children out and explore in the wonderful country that we do live in 
which has been much more difficult in the in the COVID area. Uh, really excited about uh, new developments that we've got in the curriculum as well. As I mentioned earlier, Forest Schools is something that we're mm. uh, actually uh, embracing next year. We've been trying to push outdoor learning, but uh, we're actually getting we've invested in a young teacher who is a forest schools uh, qualified uh, practitioner so i'm really excited about uh, about what that's that's going to okay i'm going to hold you to this you're going to have to write an article about that because forest schools is one of the things that i'm really interested in and seeing it in practice uh, and to actually go for someone with that kind of qualification very very interesting yeah you well, mentioned I'll make, the i'll, I'll make joseph yeah. write me uh, joseph's the new teacher i'll make him okay. write the uh, article Good bit of delegation. Excellent. And you've mentioned the Black Sea schools there. Of course, you guys have been um, pulled into something much wider with the the recent crisis in Ukraine and supporting each other there. Um, tell us a little bit about that and uh, and how that has helped other schools as well as your own community. Yes. Uh, I mean, David Cole is a, an inspiration to all of us who's the, uh, the principal at BIS. Uh, Ukraine, and he's still in the Ukraine, and they're trying to work online. He's keeping that school going, and uh, we've been trying to uh, support them as much as we can. Uh, but I, I think we've also been supporting each other because uh, having a war on your doorstep is, uh, is something that is a psychological, it's a well-being issue, it's something that uh, staff and parents and students. Uh, we, we need to consider their emotions on this, and therefore we've been able to support each other uh, in, in in just ways that you can talk to students, ways that you can talk to parents, etc. Uh, as well as you know being able to try and do our bit practically and uh, supporting the Romanian Red Cross in working with refugees. Many of our schools are also uh, supporting uh, refugees within the country. Uh, so some of them are running Saturday schools, and next Saturday we've got an event here at the ISD for for Ukrainian refugee children as well. So it, it sh- working together as a group to support each other with with ideas and uh, just being able to talk to somebody about it because it is it's it's a worry. It is it is worrying for for those of us that are on the doorstep. Yes. And that's where groups like the Black Sea Group do really come into their own, I suppose, in those kinds of situations. Finally, we try to bring together in this podcast people who wouldn't necessarily meet, although you might have met uh, in the course of uh, uh, being involved with something like COBIS or something like that. What have you learned from each other, just listening to each other today? Katie, what have you picked up from Stephen uh, about what he's been saying? I guess the creativity element is interesting for me um made me remember with your forest schools initiative that i'd done that in the uk and i haven't done it but you know maybe jungle schools is something that could come to asia um but you know this thinking out of the box this creativity and without limitations freedom to be able to think of projects that are going to inspire our staff and let them run with them um is something that probably I could work harder at and could be better at. I would love to to have something really, um, you know, along those kind of lines to think about. And I love all of the fact that you know the the insistence on the on the weekly music lessons and things like that um, really stand for what for what you believe in. Absolutely, Stephen. Quickly, because we've got a couple of minutes, literally. 
yeah, I, I really like learning powers. I mean, we call them learning goals here, but I like learning powers. It, it just makes me think of, you know, Marvel superheroes and that they've got, you know, you can develop these special powers. Uh, and I, I think that's a really powerful, pardon the pun, idea. Uh, I suppose you know, we are short of time, and, it, and I'd really like to be able to talk to Katie at some other time about uh, her article that she wrote for ITM as well on on gender, because it, it, you know the whole uh, EBI issue, I think, is is something that could be an entire another podcast as well. Uh, that we could talk about, so it would, you know, uh, it would be great to chat to Katie more in the future. Uh, maybe uh, not while we're being recorded. No. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, Katie, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great pleasure having you uh, on this ITM podcast, and I'd like to thank Jason for putting all the the technical side together, the production side, and um, good luck for the coming term. Bye-bye. Thank you very much indeed. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you for joining us for this episode of Talking About, the ITM podcast. Visit conciliumeducation.com. Copyright 2022. Produced by Jay Lasky Voices. Providing sound solutions for your voiceover needs. jlaskyvoices.com.